0: i Melendez, and I'm one of the deacons here at Cross Point and I've been asked to read the scripture uh, for this morning. <coughs> this morning we're in Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 21. <coughs> Should we stand for the reading? hope not to have you standing too long. (coughs) Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon to the house of his God and put the vessels in the treasure of his God. The king ordered Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, And Azariah, forgive me people, uh, my heart hurts because uh, this week a precious young two-year-old boy was killed in a drive-by shooting in New Roads, and his name was Azariah. Pray that God will do away with the evil in this world. Verse 7, the chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defy himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned assign you food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then, examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this te- and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked better and healthier, than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and medians in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus.
1: Please continue to stand for the preaching of God's word. <laughs> Something about that tells me that joke shouldn't have been said. <laughs> it's the sound guy. Tell me. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I'm, um, w- we were in Arkansas this past week on vacation and missed our church family. Thankful for Jim preaching God's word uh, last week to us. And so uh, last week ending our series on bite-sized gospel. I hope many of you aren't saying, man, I'm so tired of hearing about the gospel I glad to get something new. I haven't heard anybody say that and uh, I'm glad uh, but we are going to uh, to jump into our new series on Daniel, which I'm very excited about. a couple weeks ago, I challenged you to read through the whole book of Daniel. I won't ask you to raise hands if you did it or not, but uh, I still encourage you to do so and I'm excited about our study with Daniel because I do think that some of the themes and ideas that are going to come out in the book of Daniel are going to be really pertinent to the times that we're living in currently right now. Um, you know, the Bible is always applicable in, every, in, in all situations and times. But I think Daniel is going to be especially helpful for us right now as we enter into a really heated political season and also as we enter into a new year that has lots of uncertainties about it. I think Daniel is going to be a really good book to shape and mold us and maybe even prepare us for uh, the times that we're going to be living in. And so uh, ultimately the, the main point of today's sermon, and you could probably say the main point of the whole book is this. It's trusting in and remaining faithful to a sovereign God in a foreign land. Trusting in and remaining faithful to a sovereign God in a foreign land. Let me pray for us real quickly. God, we need your word, we need to feast, and hungry saints, hungry, hungry, uh, your hungry people have come here this morning to hear and be fed by your word, I pray your spirit working in us would do so, we would feast on your word, we would grow from it, and that we would have a bigger view of you than, than what we did when we came in here, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, I'm sure that you're probably familiar with lots of stories from the book of Daniel. If you've watched VeggieTales at any point, uh, you're, you're probably f- very familiar with, uh, with kind of the outline of the book of Daniel because they did some, some movies on that. And so, but as you heard uh, Mr. A.J. read, the book begins uh, with God's people in exile. Nebuchadnezzar has come and he's ransacked Jerusalem. He's enslaved people in doing so, and he's taking items out of the temple and brought them back uh, with him. And some of those uh, people that he's, he's taken with him are the best and the finest of uh, Jerusalem, and that being Daniel and his three friends. So they're, they're brought back into Babylon to be enculturated and indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of life. And so they're given new names, they're given a new education, they're given a new homeland, new homes. Uh, but then they're told to eat the king's food, and that's where Daniel and his friends put their foot down. They're, they're not going to go that far. Well what they do is then Daniel goes to the proper avenues and channels, and he says, "Hey, look, I can be just as strong as the normal guys uh, just on vegetables." And so there's a little hesitancy with some of the, the rulers and the officials, but ultimately they, um, they allow to uh, Daniel and his friends to do this for a couple days. for 10 days, they're tested, and God ultimately all the while gives them favor in the sight of their captors through all, throughout all this. And they come back and they're stronger, they're fatter in the flesh than all the people in Babylon and all the other uh, other officials. And so they are given favor in the king's sight. And Daniel and his friends, they don't have to assimilate and compromise their faith and their allegiance to Yahweh. And they come out the best of all the king's servants. And Daniel ends up living in Babylon for another 70 years. What's interesting is that this whole idea of exile is not something new. It's not something uh surprising to to israel it shouldn't be surprising to israel or even to us as readers. this was all expected this was all told about that if israel continued to rebel and break god's covenant they were going to be brought into exile just listen to the irony of what isaiah says many years beforehand before the exile in in, uh, isaiah 39 6 through 7 says this behold the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be made eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Is that not saying, hey, here's the, here's the writing on the wall. You keep doing what you're doing. This is what's going to happen. And what happens? It's exactly what happens to Israel. They continue to rebel and disobey, but ultimately we, we get Daniel and his three friends, a flicker of hope in this exile. So you may be thinking, man, this is Daniel 1, I know this story is a great story, a great kind of old fable-like sort of, man, Daniel and his three friends win the day, but um, ultimately I, I want us to see that there's, there's a theological message telling us important things about who God is and his character and his nature but also what he expects of his people, even in the midst of an exile. And I don't want us to miss that, because there's a there's a subtle way of it saying, yeah, in the midst of this good old fable, uh, not a fable as in n- not historical, it is, but in the sense of it being a good old tale, there is something underlying here that says something really big about who God is and what he expects of his people. And so two themes are going to rise to the surface in Daniel chapter 1, and will be rising to the surface all across the book of Daniel. And that's first is this God's sovereignty. That'll be the first thing that rises, and the second thing that'll rise is faithfulness. Particularly Daniel and his friends' faithfulness. We're going to see that God's sovereignty is on display all over Daniel 1, and that there's a call to faithful living in the midst of a culture that tempts us to compromise. So let's look at point number one God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God is always present and acting to bring about his purposes. Has anybody ever been in a play before? Anybody? Y- you can tell. Oh, we got a lot of actors. Uh, what's the f- official word that they call them? Thespians. That's it. The thespians. Well, if you, if, you are, um, if you watch plays or if you're in a play, uh, usually when you're in an audience member, you just see what's happening on stage, right? You see, you know, the actors doing their thing. But what you don't realize is what's going on backstage. All the things that are happening backstage is crucial and necessary and essential for what's happening on stage. You got people pulling ropes, you got people, ma- you know, doing lights, you got people running sound, you got people doing cues, you know, costumes, all this thing is that there's essential pieces happening backstage that we don't get to see as the audience members, but we know that the play could not happen if it weren't going on backstage, right? That's where the real action happens, so it's really happening. And this is kind of what's happening in Daniel 1, is that we get this kind of surface audience level of what's happening in Israel. Of what's happened to them. Is that it looks like to the untrained eye, God's people have just been taken off into exile. God has failed his people. Nebuchadnezzar has won the day. He's he's battle-tested and won, and his mighty power has ruled over them all. That's what it looks like to the untrained eye on the surface level. But behind the curtain is this. It is a God who is intervening and acting in his world and with his people sovereignly. And we cannot miss that. There is someone pulling the strings in Daniel chapter 1. And that is God. Look at this. The first verse, uh, you know, I guess you could see the first two verses. The, The opening of the book is opening like a wartime kind of movie. Like, the land is devastated, the people are captured, Nebuchadnezzar is ruling on the throne like a tyrant. This is, this is how the book is opening right here, is that, that God's people have been defeated, and their land has been desolated, and not only that, they've been brought to another land, a foreign land. Where have they been brought to? Babylon, or some of your texts may have the land of Shinar. Now, that should send off fireworks in your mind because Babylon has a history. Anybody know that? If you remember, Babylon in Genesis 11 is the place where they actually are trying to compete with God and rebel against him, build the tower up into the heavens and try and say, hey, guess what? We're God. We'll make our own cause. This is what Babylon's known for, and this is where God's people are brought to. They're not brought to a land of hospitality and saying, Oh, we, we welcome God followers. Come on in. The water's warm over here. We'll take you in. They're brought to a land of hostility and rebellion to God. They're known for challenging God, not welcoming God. And that's where God's people have been brought to, a land of hostility. And not only have Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians captured people, But they've also, they've taken the land, they have spoils. They've taken land, they've taken people, and they've taken the vessels of the temple. They've taken the vessels of the temple and they've put it into the temple of their own God. That's the way, basically, you're saying, I'm the top dog. I'll take your stuff and I'll put it where I want to. It's almost like saying, my gods are better than your God, Yahweh. My God is better than your God. That's, That's what they're saying when they're taking their stuff, their spoils. Taking the people, taking the land, and taking their stuff. And so they take people who are the sharpest and the brightest and the best looking. Sounds a lot like a guy now. Hmm. I mean, when Mr. A.J. was reading this text, I was like, God, I didn't know Daniel was describing me, right? Man. But this is who they're taking into exile, is the best and the finest of Israel into the rebellious Babylon. Now, what's interesting about this, I want you to look at verse 6. Do you know what tribe they're from? Verse 6. Judah. There's something special about Judah, if you remember that. In Genesis 49, verse 10, it's actually prophesied that the scepter will never leave Judah. And the Messiah is actually supposed to come from what tribe? Judah. Now we get Judah in exile. We get Judites in exile. There's no more Judah. And so it sure doesn't look like that the scepter has departed. It sure does look like the scepter has departed from Judah. And it sure doesn't look like a Messiah is ever going to come from there. Because they're in a foreign land. As one author says, the scepter is in the hands of a pagan king. It's not; it doesn't look like it's in the hands of Yahweh anymore, right? So it looks like Yahweh's defeated. God's people are taken out of the Promised Land. They're given new names. They're being educated in Babylonian ways. And you're you're left to think this question: Where is God? Where is God? Daniel one doesn't have any. Discussions about God coming on the scene and m- making this big revelatory speech and and and, and kind of intervening. There's n- nothing big like that. And so you love to think, has God lost his mind, lost control? What, where is he right now? Right? But in the midst of the devastation of the exile and everything that's been going on in Daniel 1, what it's telling us, is that the author gives us a flicker of hope that God has not forsaken his people in exile. He's not forsaken them. He's not thrown in the towel. He's not been duped. He's not given up. He's not been overtaken. No. The author reminds us that even in a national exile, God is still completely in control of his world and completely in control of his people. Right? And this is how he shows that God is sovereign even even in this activity. Look at these. Verse 2. And the Lord did what? Gave. Look at verse 9, and God what? Gave. And look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God, God is here. God is present. God is still working. God is still active. He's not passive or inactive or absent in this situation. God is still working behind the curtain of the scenes of the exile. God is still doing things. God is giving things. Right? He's not falling asleep. This, This repeated word of god gave and the lord gave and god gave this is the author's way of highlighting that god is divinely involved in directing and orchestrating the events of the exile and he is sovereign over all kingdoms of the world even babylon god is not active but he's behind the scenes working out his promises just because his people are in exile in babylon doesn't mean it's a no-fly zone for god doesn't mean he's absent he's absent Babylon is still Yahweh's domain, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And so, God is still here. He is still active, even when it seems like, where is God right now? God is giving. Ultimately, it says, God gave Israel into the hands of Babylon. But from the modern historical perspective, if you read this in textbooks, here's what it says. One empire dethroned another empire. That's what it looks like from the modern historical perspective. One emperor took upon another emperor. One person took apart another land. One king basically captured a bunch of people and land and spoils. That's what it says, right? It looks like surface level. This is just your regular historical empire versus empire thing, right? It's not the case at all. Is that we have to see history through the Bible's lens is that ultimately God is the one who is giving his people over into exile. The only reason that Nebuchadnezzar can do what he does is because God has allowed him to do it. He is a pawn in the hands of God. That's all that Nebuchadnezzar is. He thinks that he's in control and in the driver's seat, but that's not the case at all. He's the U-Haul being pulled behind it. That's all. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He thinks he's in control, but he is not. God has given him everything that he has. And so God doesn't just give over the exiles, give over Israel to to Babylon, but he doesn't leave them there. He's not like dropping them off at college and saying, see you at Christmas, Israel, see you in 70 years, right? No, it's that he continues to stay with his people. He continues to provide for them. He continues to sustain them, even in the midst of exile. He's not leaving them, hey, look, I, I'm giving up on you. You're going in exile, I'm done with you. No, over and over again, we hear this God gave is that, God is giving favor to Daniel in the midst of the exile, in the midst of his captors, in the eyes of them. God is giving wisdom and intelligence and insight to Daniel and his friends. So God hasn't given up on Daniel and his friends and the exiles there. He hasn't thrown up his hands and said, just take them, take them, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want them anymore. No, is that even in the midst of a foreign land, God is still active. God is still working. God is still sovereign over all this territory. That's it still divinely and sovereignly intervening in his people and in his world to bring about his purposes. And so Daniel 1 reminds us of the truth that our God is sovereign. And I know that I keep saying that word. We hear sovereignty a lot. We hear sovereign God. And I don't want to pass up an opportunity to do a definition. As you know, I like definitions. I like dictionaries. And so if you're thinking, I don't know, I've, I've never heard that word, I've heard that word all my life, and I never understand it, I, I, want, I want to unpack this for you. So when we say that God is sovereign, we're ultimately saying that God is in control and orchestrating and guiding all things for His purposes and His good, and our good, right? Christopher Morgan says it really well, and you'll see the, you'll see the definition on the screen. He says it like this. This is what sovereign means. God's supreme authority and rule over all. He plans and guides all things to his goals. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. Is that nothing is outside his domain or his control and everything that happens. He is orchestrating and moving to its end purpose in which he has designed it for. This is what it means to worship and serve a sovereign God is that he is ruler and supreme and has authority over all things, and everything that happens in life and even in exiles is being orchestrated by the God of the Bible. This is what it means for him to be sovereign. But let me, let me just move on to a couple pieces of application for us as we reflect on this truth of God's sovereignty, and we see it here in Daniel 1, is that maybe you're asking a similar question maybe in the current climate. Where is God right now? Man, I watch the news and I see what's going on here and there. Is God, I mean, has God just thrown up his hands and said, I'm done? Where is God now? Where is he? Seems that he's let go of the will. Well, I hope that Daniel 1 is a reminder for all of us that God has not let go of the will. God has not lost control of his creation, but that he is still present and active and working for his purposes. And so just because it feels to you that God is absent, he is not absent. Let me just say this real clear, and you might want to write this down. Do not allow your feelings to determine your theology. Do not allow your feelings to determine what God is like. That's very easy to do. How I feel is how God should be, but that's not the case. Our feelings should not determine our theology or what we believe about God. The Bible should, and what the Bible is telling us is this. Though it feels like God has let control, just let this world go out of control, God, from Daniel on, is sovereignly orchestrating all things and still working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes and promises. Do not allow what you feel about what's going on in this world to determine what you think about God. And it's very easy to do so. It's very easy to do so. Because we don't see. We don't see the whole playing field. I, I've, used this, I've used this illustration with our youth. But you know, there's there's reasons why on football teams that you have coaches on the field and you have coaches in the press box. Coaches on the field, they can't see the whole field. They can't see what's happening on the other side. They can't see where the corners are playing, what the receivers are doing on the complete opposite end of the field. They can't see what all the linemen are doing. That's why you have coaches in the press box. They're able to see everything from their perspective and see this is the reason this is happening. This is the reason this is happening. This is the reason this is happening. And they're able to communicate down to their coaches on the field because the coaches on the field can't see everything. Cross point. Listen to this. We don't have a global, cosmic perspective of what God is doing in this world. We aren't people in the press box. Though sometimes we feel like we should be and that we are, we're not. We are seeing just certain things in this world. We are the coaches on the field. But God is working things that only He can say and know. And we have to trust that He knows what is good and best and wisest for this world as He brings it to its ultimate goal and we need to rest in this, is that God is sovereign over large events, small events, foreign power sieges, things like this, that he's orchestrating and guiding every area of our lives to bring about his purposes. And the even exiles in whatever circumstances that you're going through is that should be seen through the lenses of Romans 8.28. I, I want to say that one more time. Is that whatever you're going through right now is that you should be reading it through the lenses of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Read your situation through the lens of Romans 8.28, that God ultimately is bringing about his purposes in this world. And it is for your good. It's for your good. So God's sovereignty is not a doctrine just to merely be believed. It's a doctrine to rest in. To sleep on. You sleep and you have restful sleep. I hope so, because you believe that God is sovereign. But I want to ask us this question. I want you to be really, just really open and transparent with yourself. Does your response to what's going on in this world, culturally, politically, within maybe in your own family, does your response to these things, to this chaos, does it communicate that you believe in a sovereign God? Let me say it one more time. Is your response to what you see in the world, is it communicating to onlookers, to observers, that you believe in a sovereign God? Or are you a chicken little? Y'all know chicken little. What does he say?
0: The sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Right?
1: Everything is crashing down around him. Uh, everything is completely undone. There's no hope in the world. It's all gone. Do you communicate to those around you that you believe in a sovereign God or do you act like a chicken little that everything is crashing around you and there is no one who can sustain or uphold you in this world? Because what the Bible says is this, is that Jesus, and we've already covered this, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We have a sovereign God, and we need to communicate that correctly. So next time when you're watching Fox News and you have a panic attack, (laughs) look what's happening. Take a breath and recognize that the world has not gotten out of it. Yeah, sure, there's bad stuff in this world. There's bad stuff happening. But just because bad stuff's happening doesn't mean God is absent and he's not present and acting in his world. Take a breath. Rest in that truth. And so we, we understand from this text that God is sovereign. He's over all events and affairs of the course of this human history. That's the first truth that stands out here. But in light of this truth is that Daniel is going to respond by living faithfully in light of him having full allegiance in a sovereign God. And so that's the second point that we're going to cover. We cover God's sovereignty. second point is this, Daniel's faithfulness. True faith will not assimilate, and when I mean assimilate, I mean compromise, give in, be succumb to, to the culture's standards. Y'all uh, remember that phrase: "When in Rome, do as the Romans do." Right? I didn't know this, but it's accredited to uh, or attributed to uh, Saint Augustine, and what he meant by that was: "Hey, when you're in a town, you." you You do kind of similar things that they do you don't you don't stick out like a sore thumb you don't do your kind of own you know you, you you go into somebody's different kind of culture you don't you don't just do your own culture stuff um he's not meaning give up on your faith or anything like that He's just meaning kind of contextualize yourself Let me give you an example of this uh Meyer and i have done done work in Ecuador in the jungles of ecuador and uh we spent time there spent a month there and um i mean they look they they don't have anything. They're living in huts, stuff like that, barely have shirts, things like that. And so um, so it would be really odd for me to drive up in the jungle in an RV with my plasma screens, with my Wi-Fi router, with my iPads and iPhones and saying, man, I really don't get good signal around here. I mean, like uh, that would be very, very uh, inappropriate. It would be very insulting to the Ecuadorians. They're like, what's a Wi-Fi router, right? And so, uh, you know, th- there's a contextualization that happens. When we go into Ecuador, we sleep like the Ecuadorians do. We eat like the Ecuadorians do, as hard as that may be. You know, you, you, uh, you work like the Ecuadorians do. That's what you do. You don't come in there and you start calling the cultural standards and doing your own culture, right? So there, there's a contextualization that happens. But there's also a limit to that contextualization. I know I'm talking real, uh, kind of confused right now. But you, you draw the line somewhere where contextualization goes across the line and it's compromised. So, for example, when we're uh, in Ecuador in the jungles, is that um, a big word shamanism uh, is, a, is a really big deal in the jungles and in the, in, in the groups there. And shamanism is basically this, it's witch doctors. They, they go to witch doctors for healing. They go to witch doctors for advice. They go to witch doctors. And so if you're a Christian and if an Ecuadorian's a Christian, is that there's a, there's a level of, hey, I'm going to contextualize to this group. And I, I, I mean, I'll eat what they do. I'll drink what they drink. I'll wear what they wear. But I cannot go to the shaman for advice and for healing. That's compromising faith. That's a compromise. And so this very thing is the decision that is placed before Daniel and his friends. Is that can you concede to all points of Babylonian life? Can Daniel completely assimilate to Babylonian culture and still preserve his faith? When in Babylon, can Daniel do everything the Babylonians do? And I think the answer that we all know is what? No. No, you can't. So let's see how the first chapter highlights this, that faith and wisdom in the midst of a culture that presses compromise. And so we're introduced to these characters of Daniel and his friends. And we're going to be, you know, with them along this journey for the next six chapters and that the book is highlighting their faith and their wisdom in the midst of a culture that is pressing them to assimilate, to get get in line with the culture and with the code. But in the midst of this story of Daniel, he's a flicker of hope in a dark, dark Babylon. A flicker of hope in a dark, dark Babylon. And it's going to remind us of this. Your geographical location doesn't determine your allegiance to God. Wherever you live, your allegiance to God goes with you. Daniel, David Helm says it really well. You can live in Babylon without becoming a Babylonian. You can live in Babylon without becoming a Babylonian. But this is Nebuchadnezzar's plan. He's wanting to indoctrinate these men. He's wanting to take them in, remove them from the homeland, from all the things that they already know about. And in order for doing this, is he's, he's bringing them new education, new foods, new drinks, new clothing, all this stuff, for the purposes of that if he can change and persuade them to change all the other things, maybe he can persuade them and change them to follow a different God. That's his goal. Indoctrinate them and inculturate them to such a point that they leave the God that they love. But Daniel draws a line in the sand, just as we said. He refuses to eat the king's food. We don't really know why. He, just, he, he says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So he says, this is a step too far. I'll contextualize, I'll do your education, I'll do the clothing, I'll do all, all these things, but that's compromising my allegiance to Yahweh, and I will not do that. And so what does Daniel do? Well, he throws a fit, right? He starts burning down, burning down Babylon, he starts ranting about them on Twitter. That's what Daniel does, right? Isn't that what he does in Daniel 1? No, he doesn't do any of that. No, his is faithfulness in action, right? Is that he goes through the proper channels. To seek change and implement change. Is that he goes to his advisor, he goes to his boss. His boss first says, no, I'm not going to do that because that will endanger my life. Well, then he goes to another commander and ultimately he's convinced and he allows them to be tested for 10 days. So he goes to the proper avenues to implement change so that he wouldn't have to compromise his faith in Babylon. This is faith in action, people. Daniel right here. And so at the end of this, Daniel's Daniel's efforts are rewarded. His faith is still intact. And guess what? The pagans even notice it. At the end of this, the pagans even realize, wow, he's stronger than all the other people. And he's and his friends are ten times better than any pagan enchanter or necromancer that we have here in Babylon. The pagans realize and see that Daniel's faith stands out in this culture. And so Daniel falls in a, lo- a long line of Old Testament characters that are put into. He realized that his allegiance to Yahweh, to God, was more important than what the world thought of him or could do to him, because too often we think, "What will this cost me? What will this cost me?" And if it's not worth it to keep my faith, if this will cost me more than I want to, I want to, I want to do, then I can hang faith up on the on the hanger, and I I, I can put it aside for a second. But that's not true faith, is it? Warren Wiersbe says it really well. True faith is obeying despite the consequences. True faith is obeying despite the consequences. Knowing what you, what's going to happen if you were to go down this route, if you were to continue following God, if you were to continue to obey God's commands, you know what the repercussions will be, and you still continue to follow Christ. That is true faith. That is not compromise. And this morning, I want to speak specifically to to our youth real quick. I know we have a few in here. Is that Daniel and his friends were youth at this point. They were students. They were teenagers. And so, students, if you ever feel like the Bible is just for adults or God's commands are just for adults, hear Daniel 1 right now. The Bible isn't just for the old people in here. The Bible is for you too. The Bible is not just calling adults to obey God and follow Jesus Christ. It's calling you to as well and to not compromise your faith in order to succumb to cultural pressures. So the Bible is for you too, students. Look at Daniel as an example of faith here. Because as one author says it like this, Daniel 1 is about the courage to live out biblical conviction when compromise would be much easier. Wouldn't that be? Students, you feel like this, and adults, you're not off the hook either. It'd be much easier to compromise in those situations that we're put in, to give in, to hang up our faith and our convictions on the hanger and say, I'm at work right now, I'm not at church. Right? But that is not true faith. It can be done. We can remain faithful to the end without compromising our faith. This is where I get that. You see the first verse of chapter 1? Now, flip over to the last verse of chapter 1. Verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he was there during Nebuchadnezzar's reign and even up until Cyrus' reign. Which tells me this, the, the chapter is bookended by these year marks saying guess what Daniel did it he continued in faith and actually flourished in his faith even in the midst of exile even in the midst of a godless nation that was pressing him to compromise so if if right now students adults if it feels like in the world that you're in there's no way I can make it to the end without compromising there's no way that I cannot give in at points take Daniel as an example it is possible through Christ, by the Spirit working in you. It is possible. It is possible. And so, just an example, uh, application for us is that it doesn't matter where you are, who you're with, your allegiance to Yahweh, your allegiance to God in Christ Jesus should be prioritized. Whether it's work, church, family, Friends, your allegiance to Christ does not ebb and flow with whoever you're with or wherever you're at. If you are truly in Christ Jesus, your allegiance to him will be with you wherever you go and will influence the decisions that you make. I was in a work environment before I came to Crosspoint where it was easy to lie to customers. And it was almost on the, on the uh, almost encouraged to lie to customers now at that point i was in seminary and i was working this job provide for my family and so you know i i could have i could have compartmentalized that well in seminary when i'm on campus and i'm at church i'll tell the truth there certainly but this is my work this provides for my family this is how i get my income and my living so i'll I'll need to do what i need to do to, to get by that's not allegiance to jesus That's allegiance to Jesus, and that's allegiance to money. So wherever you're at, whether it be work, home, church, is that your allegiance to Jesus does not ebb and flow with whatever situation or circumstance you're in. If you truly are in Christ Jesus, and your allegiance is totally in him, then it will continue steadfast and faithful wherever you're at, and that will influence your decisions that you make. So when you're pressed to cheat on your taxes, or when you're pressed to maybe maybe do something immoral, or when you're pressed to, hey, why don't you just lie to them? That would make life a lot easier. Or, hey, why don't you just fudge the numbers a little bit? Or, hey, why don't you not go? You don't have to go full out on that job site right there. Guess what? Allegiance to Jesus follows you wherever you go if you're truly in Christ Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the questions is do you look more like the culture, or do you look more like Christ? How does Babylon view us? As exiles, how does Babylon view us? And ultimately, if you're thinking, man, I don't I don't know. I, care. Because Christ's reputation is on the line. And I think it begins. If you want to talk about the homes, we've talked to, I've talked to students, but I also want to talk to parents. Parents is this is that if you're wanting your kids to live distinctly in this world, if you're wanting them not to compromise their faith, then you can't willingly compromise yours and cut corners and expect your students your kids to not cut corners and compromise their own faith. This is a call to parents as well. Is that if you don't want your kids to compromise their faith and give in to the world's standards and culture standards, then it begins in the home, living distinctly there. And thankfully that even when we do sometimes compromise our faith, even when we do sometimes give in to the world's standards, which we all have at one point, we have Jesus Christ who says, I've never given into the world's standards, but I've come to give forgiveness to those who have. I've come to not only give forgiveness and restoration to you who have given yourselves over to Babylon, but I've come to save you from Babylon, to bring you out of exile through his own life and death and resurrection. I've come to bring exiles and make exiles free in Christ Jesus. That's what Christ is offering us this morning. And not only is He offering us forgiveness and restoration from exile, but He's also offering us an example because He Himself, under cultural pressure, under political pressure, under world's chaos and pressure, He did not give in at any single moment in this world. Jesus is our example of faithful endurance in the midst of worldly pressure. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2.23 When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered... He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when Jesus is under the pressure to give in, forsake, give up, Jesus, you're done with. D- 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 just give up on this whole message and mission. Jesus endures faithfully to the end, and by doing so, and all the while, entrusting himself to his heavenly Father and his now offering us not just forgiveness for our giving into Babylon, but also He's offering us an example of how to live faithfully in this world. It can be done in Christ Jesus by His Spirit, entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, realize this, is that we are all in bondage, not to Babylon, but to our own sin. But Jesus has come lived perfectly without compromising his faith he has died the death that we deserve substituting himself for us and he's been raised from the dead to free us out of our bondage and exile to sin to give you new life and to give you freedom and the ability to live this life without compromising your faith this morning if you need forgiveness restoration you can find that only in Jesus let me pray for us this morning, we thank you for your word, and I do pray, Lord, we need your help to live in this world faithfully under the pressures that we face every day when we walk into it. Eh, When we open up our eyes and get out of bed, we are going to be faced with the pressure to give in to the world and culture's standards. So God, by your spirit and with an example of Joseph, an example of Daniel, and ultimately an